0: You see it almost everywhere you go on Eastern Long Island, the big divide. Sprawling homes, collector cars, Gatsby grounds, multi-million dollar construction, pushing out what's left of smaller, older, more traditional homes in many cases, and the people who've lived in them, pushing up the prices of just about everything, making Eastern Long Island one of the most expensive places to live in the country. Many workers who make this all possible hit the road, often before the sun comes up, traipsing across the county, braving bumper-to-bumper traffic, and more workers are needed. There are help-wanted signs just about everywhere. But the median home price in this region is more than half a million dollars now. Rents are through the roof. There are few affordable places available for all those workers. In fact, one news story this summer reported on immigrants in Southampton who mow the lawns and paint the mansions being forced to live in hovels in the woods. Does Eastern Long Island's wealth translate into opportunity or just deepen the inequality? To those who've been here forever and to the recently arrived, the big divide looks perilously deep. Hello, I'm Frank Sesno. Welcome to Chasing the Dream, a WLIW-FM special program. Over the past year, WLIW has held conversations with the community to learn what was on people's minds, what they thought we should spend more time exploring, share with the public. Economic opportunity, income inequality, and communities that have been traditionally left behind were among the top concerns. So we'll hear here from some influential voices from those discussions, from diverse communities, and from one town that's trying to invest in inclusiveness and. Affordability. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund and Sue Annette Edgar Ochtenheim III. So, first, the community perspective. I'm delighted now to be joined by Sandra Dunn, Associate Director of OLA of Eastern Long Island, a nonprofit Latino focused advocacy organization. Tila Troj, an attorney, tribal member, and advocate for the Shinnecock Indian Nation, one of the oldest self-governing tribes in the state of New York, formally recognized as a tribe by the federal government in 2010. And Brenda Simmons, she's the founder and executive director of the Southampton African American Museum. So welcome to you all, Sandra. I'd like to start with you. Uh, From Ola's perspective, from the Latino community's perspective, these problems aren't new, but COVID and inflation and just rising costs in this part of the world have made this so much more challenging. So what are the biggest changes you've seen in recent years and how are they reflected in Ola's work?
1: Thanks for the question. And thank you for having me on the show, Frank. Um, we're happy to be here. So, yes, there have been extreme uh, changes in the last few years, especially. Of course, the pandemic has affected everyone and it has affected how people live and, and the struggles that people have. So people who were struggling pre-pandemic um, are now struggling even more to be able to put food on, on the table. So one thing that Ola has been doing has been providing since the start of the pandemic, uh, supermarket gift cards to um, immigrant families most in need here on the East End. And we continue to do that for, for the, the families that contact us or that we reach out to because we know that there is need. In terms of, of other changes, something that we've seen um, a dramatic change in is the number of calls and requests for assistance related to landlord-tenant situations or or issues. So in 2019, pre-pandemic, we received nine calls the entire year that were related to landlord-tenant matters. But then in 2020, when the pandemic began, we received 20 calls. Well, in 2021, that went up to 101 calls. Wow. Almost all of those were the East End. And then ERAP, we should say the Emergency Rental Assistance Program administered by New York State, we are a local um, administrator of that program. And ERAP began in June 2021. So one very good thing about that is that people cannot be evicted if they have an ERAP application pending so that the landlords can receive back rent that they were not able to pay during COVID.
0: And is that what most of these calls were about, Sandra, evictions?
1: A lot related to evictions sometimes disputes but many many related to evictions and in 2022 so far and we're not even at the end of the year we're three quarters of the way through the year we've received 132 calls and that is um, in large part i would say because the eviction moratorium that had been put in place at the state level ended January 15th. So what we've seen is landlords uh, not behaving well and people who have been in their homes for 10, 12, 13 years, even if they were able to pay their rent during COVID are now being evicted. And in some cases, the landlords are intending to evict illegally. So when we receive these calls, we advise people about their rights and responsibilities. And we've also held a forum so that landlords can understand their rights and responsibilities and understand that the 2019 New York state law that protects tenants, that they need to follow this.
0: I I know that you've also been dealing with increased pressures and problems with respect to health care and Wage theft and 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 uh, food, sexual assault. So, would you say that the situation, because of these issues, just generally has? deteriorated in these past several years are you dealing with a a greater sense of crisis
1: we're definitely dealing with a greater sense of crisis um so much so that when the pandemic hit we we hired a staff member and her title is is crisis response and recovery coordinator because we knew we needed additional staff to be able to handle Um, a lot of the situations that were arising. So her name is Wally Ramirez, and she, along with our crisis team, we have a crisis team um, made up of Alma, Tobar, and Erica Padilla, along with Wally, and Minerva Perez, our executive director, meet weekly and communicate almost every day about clients that, that, again, reach out to us or whom we know about who need assistance with food via the supermarket gift cards or homebound people who need volunteers to go grocery shopping for them and, and deliver their groceries to them. So we are still involved in the supermarket gift card program in a tremendous way. We've also tried to create more healthcare access by making sure that COVID vaccines are available to all people and in people's villages and hamlets where they live. We've partnered with a number of uh, nonprofit organizations, including Houses of Worship, also with town governments in some cases, to make sure that, that vaccine sites were operated where people could get to them and also that bilingual help was available.
0: Let me turn to Tila Troj now. Tila, um, you've certainly heard Sandra's discussion of some of the crises and challenges facing the Latino community here. But how have these issues and, and what we've seen over the last few years affected the Shinnecock Nation and, and the tribal members you know so well and who's for whom you advocate?
2: Thank you, Frank. This is such an important discussion to be a part of. And so we have noticed a lot of the same issues that Sandra has described in terms of housing insecurity, food insecurity, inability to cope with rising energy costs here on the East End. Um, To give a little bit of context, Shinnecock Nation has called the East End of Long Island home since time immemorial for at least 13,000 years since the last ice age and Historically, this has always been a place of great abundance and it's still a place of great abundance. We see a concentration of billionaires and millionaires here you know, no other place in the country can really say the same, and so there are a lot of resources here on the East End. Unfortunately, there are also marginalized communities such as the Shinnecock Nation, um, who have suffered from enslavement, attempted genocide, theft of lands, and now with the pandemic we're facing an even deeper crisis of inequality due to what has been stolen from us. And now we're in the critical situation where, you know, we're rapidly losing land due to the climate crisis and the rising sea levels and saltwater intrusion from the hurricanes and the super storms. Um, we're facing the loss potential loss of some of our traditions and cultures due to ocean acidification and there being too much carbon. Um, As we all know, this place that we call home is so beautiful. It's really a sensitive ecological area, Um, but we can't support this lifestyle. We can't support the overdevelopment of our sacred Shinnecock Hills. We can't support any more mansions. We can't support any more golf courses, no more swimming pools um, that, you know, are having the effect of dumping massive amounts of nitrates and carbon into our water, um, which is killing all of our marine life.
0: Sheila, let me ask you about that, if I may, because you ticked through a lot of things here. And obviously the, the discussion around COVID and the economic uh, inequality is something we're all very familiar with, but as you bring in the, the climate element as well, I mean, the Shinnecock nation is surrounded on three sides by water. You know, you're very concerned about these con- the pr- pressures on development all, but what are the actual changes in recent years that people are seeing as a result of this that affect the, the life of your tribal members?
2: So we have a number of things going on. In 2019, right before the pandemic started, we embarked on economic development that was almost immediately quashed through litigation um, by New York State. And the reason that we were engaging in economic development is to take care of our children and our elders and our tribal members.
0: What is the economic development you're talking about? What is the particular project?
2: I'm talking about a monument sign that we built on our tribal territory in Hampton Bays. It's known as Neomuck or Canoe Place or Westwoods, along Sunrise Highway. New York State slapped us with a lawsuit which drained what little bit of resources we have and then the pandemic hit. And so we are in a situation where we're facing food insecurity. So we don't have money from economic development. We don't have a tax base. So we can't go to the grocery store to buy food. So we rely on the waters around us, which traditionally have been very abundant in shellfish and fish and other marine life that we could use to eat and feed and sustain ourselves. Now we don't have that because during COVID, we saw a 38% increase in population as a result of the mass exodus of folks fleeing from New York City, fleeing the virus and trying to establish Year-round homesteads here in our ancestral homelands. Um, things were already bad. Things were already unsustainable before the pandemic. We could not support the current population. So imagine a thirty-eight percent increase in population. A thirty-eight percent increase in nitrates being dumped into the water. The carbon footprint of this new population. It's it's unsustainable.
0: And you've seen results. I mean, you've seen effects from that 38% increase just in the last few years on what can be harvested from the water and taken from the water?
2: Just earlier this year, President Biden declared a federal fishery disaster zone in our traditional waters because 99% of the sea scallops have died. So we have seen a, a crisis in our waters, in our food systems. It threatens our food sovereignty, the economic attacks against us. from the state of New York threaten us. We are a people who are homeless in our own traditional territory. We have elders who are living in tents. We have people who are freezing to death. We have homes that we can't go out and access any type of capital to make improvements for. We can't get mortgages because we collectively own the land and it can't be alienated or used as collateral. So we're really in a crisis. We as a nation have been able to put resources towards all of this. We were able to provide utility payments. We were able to provide um, food distribution as well as food gift cards. We were able to use our collective resources to make critical home repairs. When the pandemic started and everyone got locked inside, we found ourselves in a really critical crisis because almost every single home on territory has black mold because all the land that was stolen from us was the, is the highest point in Southampton. We were forced onto land that is at or below sea level and so almost every single home is afflicted with black mold. And so when this pandemic started and everyone was told to go home, lock yourselves in, um, it's problem. now been two years. It's a big problem yeah. when you've got yeah. to force, you know, children and elders into homes that have black mold.
0: Pila, let me let me ask you something else here. Uh, one last question before moving on to Brenda, and then we're going to open the conversation to everybody, too, about what what can be done about these things. One of the other proposals that's out there, and I don't want to make this conversation about the casino, but I I need to touch on that because so many are aware of it. There is a casino proposal. Would that address these huge issues and, and help people with income and employment to change this equation fundamentally?
2: There are so many economic development projects in the work. There is a marijuana cultivation and distribution, medical facility, adult use, medical, cannabis combined facility, there is a gas station proposal, there are the monument signs, there's casino gaming. There are so many different economic development um, pursuits that we have attempted as a nation. Each and every one has seen just this um, attempt at quashing immediately from either the town of Southampton or the state of New York. And, you know, we we are a community who have had all of our resources stolen. We have been enslaved, subject to... Um, indentured servitude we have you know we don't have access to any of our traditional sites we just had to purchase on the open market For over $15 million, our sacred burial land that had a mansion built on it, which we had to then demolish, even though we're in a situation where we're facing homelessness, we had to demolish, you know, these mansions that were illegally and unethically built on our sacred burial sites. So it's basically anything that we attempt to engage in in terms of economic development is destroyed and it's not sustainable and it's cruel and it's unjust and it's wrong.
0: We'll come back to to where your priorities are and where the opportunity may lie in in just a minute or two. But Brenda Simmons, let me turn to you, Um, the founder and executive director of the Southampton African-American Museum. You've seen the black population decline in Southampton. There was a very healthy uh, black population there where you live and work and and where you've established this museum. Uh, What's happening now um, with the black population?
3: First, I want to also thank uh, WLIW and Frank and Delaney for this opportunity and this great, much-needed conversation. Born and raised here, okay, I'm not going to say my total age, but over 60 years, I have seen (laughs) a lot of changes.
0: And you worked for the village of Southampton. We should say that, too.
3: I I had worked for the village of Southampton, assistant to the mayor for 11 years, and also recording secretary. So I was in the trench of seeing really a lot of what was going on inside. And for my community, you know, I have to just say this briefly. I'm remembering now when um, our community was considered a ghetto and uh, drug infested and a place you never would, you were scared to come up. Even some of the police was supposedly scared to come up here. But we formed a community um, group, neighborhood association. Everything was wonderful. So now this has been a community where this is the best place to buy cheapest place to buy a house. So at this point now, like you mentioned earlier, Frank, I think we talked about six or 7% now of African-Americans a year. I think what happened, a lot of the children left to go to school and couldn't afford to come back here. So they stayed and they found um, affordable housing, affordable place to live and jobs. So, you know, this has been a lot of changes here. And basically I can probably on one hand, maybe two, Really count the number of houses here that are originally owned and stale here by the community that has originally been um, brought here back in what the 50s. So,
0: Brenda, you have a really unique perspective on this because you work for the village of Southampton as well as being a resident and, and a member of this community. As you see the costs and the disparities and think about the conversation and what we've heard uh, from Sandra and Tila up till now, what, what concerns you the most?
3: Well, the elephant in the room is gentrification. And it's not being talked about. It seemed like it's not being addressed, you know. And I believe if you think about it, um, really the root of why we haven't to try to get so many affordable housing is because of gentrification. Again, this has been a topic that I've wrote about even in some of the articles and letters to the editor because it seemed like no one wants to talk about gentrification. That's what I've seen happen, that the majority of the homes here are owned by outside landlords and also. You know, when I was working for the village, and I don't talk about this much, but I'm going to expose it today, that I was told and overheard, rather, not told, overheard that they eventually was trying to make this out of a gated community on the Hill here. And it has been done in Tuckahoe.
0: More gated communities is part of this conversation, is what you're saying. More exclusivity, yeah. more wealth, more gated communities. I mean, this is certainly something you see across the region where, as I, as I mentioned at the outset of this of this conversation. You see these small little homes or homes that have supported families for years and years, bought up and turned into, you know, a very expensive mini mansion or mansion in some cases.
3: And the challenge is really, like I said, I've been here over 50 years in this particular home and literally now on my street, on my particular street now, there is a home now that's a million dollar home, is a pool being put in and a pool house. Never would I have thought that I would see that on this community.
0: All right. I want to turn to affordable housing now and bring Sandra and Tila and 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 you, Brenda, into this conversation briefly before turning. Looking at one community that's trying to do something about this, um, the term of art now is workforce housing, not mm. affordable housing. Um, but, but there, are, but there are efforts. All right. The Sandy Hollow Cove opened in Southampton a few years ago, and the then governor Cuomo said developments like that one are going to make it possible for working people to find affordable housing and raise their families. Brenda, is the problem solved?
3: I have to first be positive and say I give the town um a great you know acknowledgement for the effort that they're trying to do. But I don't think it's enough, and I don't want to say it's too late, but I'm just saying that I don't know if it can really is not definitely have solved the problem for sure.
0: Sandra, Sandra, what from your perspective in the community you're working with um, has the have some of these efforts to create workforce housing? Have they helped? Are they enough?
1: Um, I completely agree with with Brenda that you know it's good to, it's good to see the effort happening, but it's not enough. And I also think that when we when we talk about affordable housing or workforce housing, there's still um, a bias there. A lot of people imagine in in our community that these houses should go for certain people and not for certain other people, and that is is really tragic. I think we also need to shift you know just overall the conversation about quote-unquote affordable or workforce housing to the focus on increasing homelessness. So people who are being evicted and displaced, to to pick up on what Brenda was saying about gentrification, this is a, a process of displacement that we are seeing on the East End. So people who are being displaced then are forced sometimes to live in the woods, or we have a case right now of a woman who was about to stay in her car with her two children because of an eviction that happened to be legal. But we were able to get two more months in the home by speaking with the landlord. So people are in very disparate situations. So we can't speak only about affordable housing that is not affordable to many, many people who are being displaced. We need to speak about the increasing homelessness in the Hamptons.
0: So Sandra, I want to hover on that for a minute because that's a really important point, it seems. Are you seeing and have you got the data to prove this, an increasing homelessness problem amongst people who either are being evicted or can't get in in the first place, but are just Setting up tents or living out of cars and RVs.
1: Um, obviously, we're not hearing from from everybody who's in this situation. But uh, for example, the the article about homeless men that you mentioned er- earlier. So we have been in touch with a few of those men in one of the hamlets in Southampton Town. We are now in the process of trying to make sure that they get nutritious food and, and such. Obviously, we, we can't provide housing. Um, but in the case of, of the woman I just mentioned with her two children, in a case like that, sometimes we are able to, to find somebody in the community who has a home, who out of the goodness of their heart, says, yes, I will let let this family stay here for a little bit. We received another call a couple of weeks ago, I think, about another woman who had slept in her car here on the East End with her children. So these are not the kinds of calls we were getting in the past. I'll just say that. And so just knowing that what is happening, this process of, of displacement, process of desperation, um, or situation of des- desperation that, that many people are experiencing where there is nowhere to go except much further west. And many people simply they don't want to take their children out of the school districts that they've been in, you know, all the time.
0: Well, and it also sets up a miserable commute and it separates families because it takes so time to so much time to go from home to work and, and all the rest. There are just enormous complications with all of that. Exactly. Tila, let me turn let me turn to you on the subject of affordable housing, workforce housing, whatever you want to call it. What is the response that the Shinnecock Nation is looking toward, or that you're looking to, um, that would alleviate some of the crisis that you spoke about within the Shinnecock Nation?
2: So the Shinnecock Nation has really prioritized those tribal members who are currently experiencing homelessness. And we are three quarters of the way done completing a project which we call our Shinnecock Homeless Transition Homes. So those are five structures that we built to address the problem of homelessness here on Shinnecock Territory. Um, We have extensively planned for those homes to be fully powered by solar energy, um, which will then give opportunities for tribal members who are, are experiencing homelessness to hopefully engage in those types of green energy jobs, which... Um, I think are going to be prioritized here in New York State and on Long Island uh, relatively soon. We need to transition to green energy. We need to protect our climate. We need to get these this traffic. Everyone is concerned about traffic from a Shinnecock Casino. Guess what? There's already a traffic problem here. We are having folks driving just hours from Brookhaven because there's no affordable housing. All of those cars on the highway are contributing to the carbon crisis that we're having. We can't sequester the carbon quick enough. It's causing ocean acidification, which is destroying the shells of the shellfish in our local waters, which again has historically always been abundant and now is being seriously jeopardized. And so if we can together as a community find solutions to protect our most vulnerable members from homelessness and also provide homes here, Um, I think that we can tackle a lot of the different crises. They're not so different. You don't have to focus on addressing, um, you know, affordable housing and not address the climate crisis. We can find solutions that are comprehensive and affect and change and provide solutions to all
0: of them. I think that's what you just what you just said, Tila, I think is a very important point and a perfect place to bring in Dawn Thomas, which is if we can work with the community. So let me turn to Dawn Thomas now, community development director of the town of for the town of Riverhead. Worked in various capacities for the town for more than fifteen years. Dawn, thanks very much for taking some time with us here.
4: Oh, thanks for having me, Frank.
0: So, Don, let me, let me ask you, if I can, to start with, just to respond to some of what you've, you've heard. You've heard about homelessness and affordability. You've heard about health care and access to food. You've heard about some of the environmental concerns that, that, that aggravate all of this. What's your reaction when you hear about these kinds of things and, and, a, and an appeal to work with the community? Is it just overwhelming and too much to be done? Are people too, too narrow-minded to do it, or do you actually think that there's a road ahead?
4: Oh, there's definitely a road ahead. I mean, you can't work in community development and not be optimistic about the future. And I think the uh, ladies here will probably agree with me. The East End's, you know, traditionally been a very strong local community, and and the strength of those original communities will carry us through to the next to the next level.
0: True enough, but but Dawn, if I may, it's also a community that's gotten richer and richer more and more expensive mm-hmm. the place where i have a house that's been in our family for you know more than 6 decades is not a community that i could possibly buy into today yeah. so there's been sort of this inexorable march toward just exclusivity and and sky-high prices that are you can't even wrap your brain around
4: yeah and i think tila Uh, pointed out the, you know, the exodus, the COVID exodus from New York City, and that really just exacerbated things tremendously because those homes that might have been affordable were scooped up by people who could pay a lot for them and were desperate to get them, and um, that drove the prices up everywhere. So, you know, Riverhead's traditionally been the affordable community on the east end, and I think what struck me most about everybody else's comments were really the loss of community is such a big issue. We see these homes being purchased by people with a lot of resources and driving the people with less resources further away, providing, you know, jobs and opportunity for those people also. But Southampton's always an interesting example, I think. And and I agree, Southampton government's trying hard to address the issues. Although, um, you know, I was sad to hear the difficulties that Teela's community was having with the government over there and New York State. You know, as a community, you know, we have different entities. We have uh, government, we have workers, we have schools, hospitals. And those those are the entities where you really want to see people you know working. And I know if you're a teacher, for example, and you're teaching in Southampton and you're living in Brookhaven, are you staying after school to help Childrens with their homework. Are you, you know, coaching a team? Are you attending a concert? Are the things that you know you want the community members to be? And I was speaking to Reverend Coverdale here of the First Baptist Church in Riverhead not too long ago, and he was talking to me about a hospital stay he had not, uh, you know, fairly recently, and how he didn't know anybody that were, was working in the hospital, and and that's the loss that you that you sense.
0: So talk to us a little bit about what you're doing in Riverhead because you're doing a number of things. You're revitalizing the downtown. You've got a hotel coming. How does this address affordable housing? How does this invest in the diversity that you're trying to preserve or that you've talked about trying to preserve in in Riverhead?
4: So Riverhead's always been you know, like I said, the affordable community on the East. end. we have, I think we have close to 40% affordable in our downtown in terms of rental uh, opportunities. And then we have smaller homes just on the outskirts of downtown. We have affordable senior opportunities all over town. We're just about 20% overall, you know, townwide. And I hate to use the word affordable. And I think it's really accessible. It's, It's accessible housing for all different levels of incomes in the community. And that's where really what we're striving to have that economic diversity in in our town.
0: And so how are you what what are you doing to have that diversity?
4: We have a number of affordable apartments in downtown Riverhead. There are three complexes. Currently, we're adding another uh, workforce.
0: These are new complexes or designated complexes?
4: Yes. Yeah. So 11 West Main is an affordable complex. We have Peconic Avenue. There's a 50 unit building there. There's 117 units on Main Street. That's a a variety of affordability. So we go from 60% AMI up to 130% AMI. So a nice diverse mix of different levels of income. And then we're balancing that with some market rate rentals because we want that economic diversity. We want that tourism and hotel traffic to bring the revenue to downtown and provide opportunities for employment within walking distance. The downtown's also very commutable to the hospital. It's just a few minutes. You could walk there from downtown in nice weather. You know, we've just been working on continuing to maintain that level. The difficulties is is not so much in the governments further east of us. It's, and I think maybe Sandra mentioned this there's a, a bias toward affordability, and I, I've heard comments at public hearings from towns further east. Oh well, why should we put affordable in this town when it's in Riverhead? You know, and I think that's unfair, not only to Riverhead but to their own community.
0: So let's play this game, if I if I can, with you, Don. We're going to promote you. We're going to call it a promotion anyway. Okay. And we'll transport you. <laughs> To one of these other towns, to Southampton, to Sag Harbor, to East Hampton, which is not Riverhead, and where they're talking about and trying to build affordable housing. There's a new proposal, for example, in Sag Harbor to build 79 units, one and two bedroom units, between 1,500 and 1,850 a month or so. But it could be years before this happens because the village board, the planning board, the zoning board, the board of historic preservation, all of them may have have to weigh in. So if we moved you to a job like you've got now in one of these communities and gave you a magic wand, what would you do?
4: Educate the public is absolutely necessary. I think people in the eastern towns need to be educated about why it's important to them, regardless of their financial position, to have people, all different kinds of people, living, working, and enjoying the community that they're in. And because there's the stigma, people, they'll they'll talk the talk, but they won't walk the walk. And I think that's what you need to be able to do. You need to explain and educate the public about why it's important to maintain your community, your sense of community, like Reverend Coverdale talked about, or like, like the school teacher I was referencing, or the policeman who's who lives and works in the community they live in. They're invested in that community, they have pride in that community, and they take care of that community. And those are the things you lose if you don't have that. And I think that's where I would start. Southampton and Southhold are probably going to adopt this new half- percent tax, mm-hmm. they're gonna be able to acquire some property, hopefully, and and sponsor their own projects, do public private partnership projects like Riverhead does here.
0: Are you a proponent of that? Taxes to acquire property and to build for this purpose.
4: So in Riverhead, it doesn't work because the Community Preservation Fund in Riverhead doesn't even come close to uh, accumulating the revenue that the East End towns do on their 2% transfer tax. And we, Riverhead has the largest amount of agricultural property, certainly on the on the island. And we bonded against the anticipated revenue of CPF. And we bought a lot of properties that were probably in crisis to be developed so that we could preserve our agricultural heritage here. So we did that work, but when the economy went south in the last 10 years prior to COVID, uh, the revenue was reduced. And so we couldn't even keep up with the bond payments. So the taxpayers were coming out of pocket to cover our CPF bonds. So we weren't able to, to do that. I had a conversation with someone, a local press recently. The way they worked it out was they increased the exempt amount from the tax. So that the overall implication to the home buyer was equal to the 2% tax. But if you increase the exemption here in Riverhead, you knock out a lot of the homes that we would get tax revenue from. So we can't afford to do that. You know, we would you know what we're really wanting here, and I think the other community is probably the same, the first time home buyers are an important the rentals are important, but we need an equity opportunity for people to slide into after they're they're, you know, able to get some financial stability, you know, paying rents that they can afford, move into that equity opportunity and, you know, really take root in their community.
0: Buy a home and become part of the community. Yes you know, in a very direct way, as you're talking about. Well, listen, um, I just want to do a shout out for you, if I may, because I was uh, perusing a bunch of things and I, you know, your commitment to affordable housing in the areas where you're working uh, won you a a very nice thing. And I was seeing in the Riverhead News Review, they they called you out. If there was ever a moment to believe in downtown Riverhead, they wrote, this is it. And it's largely because of Don Thomas uh, and because of the work the work that you've done uh, downtown, uh, working with the dilapidated buildings there, trying to preserve open space, do these other things, and I think that's what people need to realize is just how complicated this is.
4: Well, that's very nice. Very nice.
0: Before we wrap up here, I'd I'd like to turn back to to Brenda, San, uh, Sandra, and Tila um, for for one thing that you would like to communicate from your communities to other the other Don Thomases out there, people who are working for these towns and communities and and trying to move policy in ways that actually does create more opportunity than inequality. Tila, let me start with you very briefly. What is one thing you would like uh, people in, in public life to take away from this conversation?
2: I think that there needs to be a return of land back to Indigenous people who have successfully stewarded the lands in a successful way for thousands of years before that was disrupted by colonization. We need to work together with everyone who now calls the community home to find sustainable solutions that focus on equity for all people and justice for all people. And I think it's possible to work together to restore our society in a way that benefits each and every one of us, not just a select few.
0: Sandra, how about you?
2: I think that public-private partnerships to build on what
1: what Don was just saying are, are very very important I think sometimes what happens however is that nonprofit organizations get left out and we are the organizations working most closely on the ground with the people so I think government needs to be reaching out to to nonprofits rather than waiting for us to come to them and say hey you need to do this I would also say that thinking about accessible or affordable housing let's really make sure that that is truly accessible to more than police officers teachers etc but to the people who work here, regardless of immigration status, who are sustaining the industries that that really are the economic backbone of the East End.
0: Brenda Simmons, you get the last word.
1: I'm going to just piggyback on
3: something Dawn said that's very, very important to me, is the value and the importance of community. And community is basically, you know, a social connection, you know, it's a sense of belonging, you know, it's a place to, to bond values and goals and really a place to be enjoying a fulfilling life. And I think that's what's been lost here is community.
0: Well, thank you all. And thanks to all of our guests, Brenda Simmons, Tila Troge, Sandra Dunn, Don Thomas. This is an enormously complicated problem. It's not a new one, but it has intensified uh, with COVID and with just movement of people and population with rising costs on everything. And these communities are fundamentally challenged to ask themselves, what do they want to be? Do they want to be communities? And if they're going to be communities, can they embrace and give people a stake from across socioeconomic rungs of this ladder and who are, as I said at the beginning, who've been here forever or who are our newest arrivals? I'm Frank Sesno. Chasing the Dream is a public media initiative from the WNET Group reporting on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. You can learn more at pbs.org slash Chasing the Dream. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Ganz Cooney Fund and Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III. Thanks so much for listening.